This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, meeting this August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th at the National Shrine of Our Lady of Chestakova, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. For more information and to register, check out the link in our show notes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my Pillar... And I'm joined... Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Pillar co-founder and editor, Ed Condon. Sometimes I just got to run through the thing in the right cadence so that I know what it is. That's fair enough. You... You do that without a script every week, so it is it is muscle memory for you, and I am always impressed by it. You cannot imagine, Ed, the deep emotional labor involved in the hosting duties of this podcast. Like, I have to say that at the beginning, and then I have to say a thing at the end. I mean, you know, this is a burden. I know, but with, you know, great power. <laughs> and what a great gift it is. And I'm, gosh, I realize this sounded platitudinous, but what an honestly good, like, do you ever just stop and think what a gift it is that we have, the, like... The community that's come out of the show and the community that's come out of the pillar and that we have, like, the gift of being able to do the stuff that we do. It's really – I sometimes marvel at the goodness of the Lord. I, I am continually surprised that I am allowed to do what I do for a living, yes. And yeah. I am acutely aware that it is um, down to a very small, relatively speaking, and dedicated group of people who allow us to do that. Um, I wish it were a little larger – Listeners of the Pillar Podcast who perhaps aren't subscribers at PillarCatholic.com. But no, oh, I think yeah. listeners of the Pillar Podcast who aren't subscribers of the, of the Pillar uh, – uh, listeners of the Pillar Podcast who aren't subscribers of the Pillar, I'm sure have a good reason. Cause I think I'm sure they do, too. People who listen to this show know and love us and they know and love that look, we have this. You never know. Someone could be listening for the first time. I don't know. <laughs> I, look, this is – I was talking about this with someone um, – when was I talking with them about it? Earlier this week at some point. I don't know. A day earlier this week. And they were they were basically saying to me that they they like what we do they like our stuff they were in, they were in favor they listened to the show they were you know all of the stuff and they said to me um, you know it'd be really great if you could you know mix it up a little bit you know sometimes I feel like there's you know one big thing in the news which is what we did this last week really is you know we had two Let's big cover one big thing in the news two big things in the news which we're going to talk about we're going to talk about and this you know it'd be nice if you know it could be leavened a little bit more and I said yeah it would be nice you know. There's only two and a half of us, um, right. you know, well, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I guess what I'm saying. Well, that's not quite right. Our little band is a little bit more. Well, no, I, I just mean in terms of daily full time. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then our podcasting producer, Kate Oliveira, who's working on some cool, interesting podcasts. But still, we have uh, we are a uh, we are we're we're an, an erstwhile and budding media project with limited resources. We are a merry band. But um, it would be, I guess what I'm really doing, J.D., is making a coded plea on behalf of my wife. <laughs> I don't think it's that coded. I, I know, but I she wants, she's, she's really got it in her head that we need to take a vacation this summer. And I keep trying to explain oh. to her that you can take a vacation and I will come with you. Well, and I think it's natural that when you start something, you know, you really kind of have your sleeves rolled up and be up, up to your elbows in it. Right. But I do think as time goes on, we'll have more time for leisure. I I don't. I don't necessarily need time for leisure. I. I just. Um, I, I. There's more we could do. I'm excited for the more we oh, could do. Plenty. That's I did it. not know. I did not know that this was going to turn into a subscription drive. But here we are. Uh, and uh, and actually, Ed, would you like to hear a story uh, before we? We have some very serious things to talk about. But 
Um, in exchange for uh, – to our listeners, in exchange for um, their patience during that mini-subscription drive, would you like to tell a story about how much God – or do you like to hear a story about how much God loves me? I – yes, please. It's a it's, – it for me was just – it was it was a story of serendipity. So you know, Ed, that um, almost a month ago I uh, misplaced, I would say, my wallet. Did I not? You did, and I didn't find out about this until three weeks after you'd lost your wallet and you – eventually fessed up that the company card was in your wallet and well so i lost my wallet and i basically um i looked everywhere and i was like i was returning from a trip and usually if i go on a trip that i drive to the airport but i didn't drive to the airport so i got a ride back and forth and my dad and on the way back from the airport we like i hadn't slept and we made a bunch of stops and somewhere between the airport and like the next day my wallet was uh, gone and I, i think i now have an idea of where it is i think i I think I accidentally threw it away at the post office, but at the time I didn't know that. And so, um, and so like somewhere between there and the next day, my wallet was gone. And so I searched through my dad's car and I searched through my bag and these things and I didn't find it. And so I just started monitoring. I did what you do, which is I just started monitoring the cards to see if they were used, you know, my, my cards. That's not what you and do. What do you do? You, you immediately burn your entire life down. You immediately call your <laughs> bank. You immediately cancel all the cards. You immediately change your address you anything anything <laughs> written down in a missing wallet with your name next to it like I, like i would if it were legally possible i would change my legal date of birth if i lost my wallet with my driver's license so that no one could replicate i mean i don't i don't i you went three weeks with a missing wallet that well you can't you can't do that stuff because it's terrifically inconvenient what you need to do as a person who's lost their wallet more than once is you need to just give it some time let the whole situation sort of breathe and give it some time for the thing to appear which i have you know as i want to do misplace my wallet many a time in my life and uh, usually it appears um and uh, and so um i'm twitching right you know, now <laughs> Well, I think there are people who are comfortable losing their wallet and people like you who are not comfortable losing their wallet. And and usually it appears. So I like, uh, you know, it was it's a little bit inconvenient because while you're waiting, you know, you just have to check your cards every single day, see if there's any usage. Because if there's any usage, bam, you know someone's got your wallet. If there's not any usage, well, you can just sort of give it a little time and see what's going to happen. But in the meantime, like if you're going to go to the store or whatever, you've got to either borrow your wife's card or get some cash. And so it can be, you know, just there's an inconvenience there. and uh, And so... Um, after a couple of weeks, the inconven- and like I flew without my wallet once or twice, and so I had to uh, fly on my passport, which just feels weird. You know, you're showing the TSA your passport, like you're some going on some international oh, trip. Hang on, how did you? You Cincinnati got on a plane without your wallet? Well, uh, as I say, I didn't have my wallet, and I need to get on a plane. I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't make it to the end of my driveway without. Like, <laughs> I, I don't understand. It's okay. It's okay. And it's actually somewhat liberating. Like, it was kind of cool. I did have to go on a trip. And so I brought my passport. And then I just brought some cash. You know what I mean? And I and I wasn't – I didn't need – I was staying with somebody. So I didn't need a um, – or staying somewhere. And I so I didn't need a, uh, a card like for a hotel or anything like that. So I just like – how much money do I have on the trip? The amount of cash that I had. And it's kind of like – kind of cool actually. It was kind of – I felt like the world before everything changed, you know. And, uh, and so it's kind of – but after a while, you start to realize, like, okay, either it comes back or you start to realize this thing's not coming back. And that's when I sort of – I had gone to the places where my dad and I had stopped on that fateful trip and my wallet wasn't at any of them. And, and so I've replaced my steps and I'm pretty sure – so I, I, when my dad picked me up, we ran a bunch of errands on the way home. And at one point, he stopped at the post office where he has a P.O. box and went in to get their mail. And there was – his car was a little bit messy, so I grabbed a garbage bag and I – cleaned up his car while I was waiting for him because I'm a nice guy and I'm pretty – and then I put the 
garbage bag in the in the in the dumpster at the post office, and I'm pretty sure that that's where my wallet is because it's the it's like the one thing I couldn't check. You know what I mean? And uh, and so you know that's actually good because if it's in the dump, that's like akin to being at the bottom of the sea, and I probably don't have anything to worry about or whatever. But you know, so about a week ago, I decided I got to kind of just get moving on this, and so I went down to the DMV to get a new driver's license, which took me about three minutes. I was very surprised and ordered new credit cards and things like that. But so my cards have come, and I have this sort of temporary driver's license. And so I was going on a trip, getting on a plane yesterday. I'm, a, I'm in, I'm in, a, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm traveling right now. And uh, and so I realized, like, oh, I have these cards now and this temporary license, and so I need um, somewhere to put them. And so I thought, well, maybe I have a spare wallet around here f- from some other time when I've lost my wallet. And so I was looking around. Wait, around wait, 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 back up, back up, back up. Maybe you have a spare wallet around here from some other time you've lost your wallet. Yeah, I mean, this happens to people. This is an what, ordinary. What does it mean, a wallet. spare wallet? From, like, you do have a duplicate wallet with e- extra cards? Not with extra cards and stuff or an extra license, just, oh, at some, like, you know, I have lost my wallet before and I've let it ride before and it's always turned up. And so I thought, well, maybe I ha- was carrying, one of those times I was carrying around a wallet just so that I would, you know, have a place to put whatever it was that I needed to carry. Um, and uh, and so I I looked around, and this is the part where I think um, God gave me a little gift of how much he loves me. I looked around yesterday morning before I had to go to the airport, and uh, I remembered that possibly in my closet, our closet, was a wallet. And so I looked on the top shelf of the closet, and sure enough, there was a wallet. And Ed, I opened it up, and you know what was so cool? There were five 20s in that wallet. How cool is that? I, a, I, I mean, that's a lot of money. It is. I, I, I. It was like it was like Christmas morning. No, no. Oh, happy! Oh, happy fall, as it were. Oh, happy fall, Ed, that merited for me the signal grace of finding that spare wallet in those five twenties. Nothing in the entire narrative you have just gone through <laughs> is even remotely recognizable to me as something that a sane person <laughs> would live through. I just, I don't. I. These things happen. Oh Lord, I. Honest, I honestly, I just, I mean, I don't mind losing my phone. I've lost my phone a ton of times, but for how long? How long? What? Like, how long has your phone been gone? Uh, well, if I lose it around the house, it can be gone for up to an hour. If I lose it outside of the house, I oh, you've lost it, lost it indefinitely, and never came back. Well, if I've lost my phone outside of the house, I don't make any effort to get it back. I just immediately log on, wipe the thing remotely, trigger the self destruct mechanism, and order the replacement. <laughs> I, I just. <laughs> but the idea of losing my wallet is just I that, like do I like my phone is so packed full of security apparatus yeah. like it's yeah, yeah. It, like I can barely open this thing when it's locked sure and so well, we no use one else special is going to, security things to open our computers and everything yeah, for the pillow. the idea that someone is going to have a thing that just has my name and address written on it as well as all my banking details it's just like that's my nightmare I, I but people are good you know a couple of years ago I lost my wallet and. Um, and I thought I lost it. We, uh, I used to. I used to have an office in um, in a in a in a kind of a you might say developing neighborhood in um, in the Denver metro area. I used to have an office, and I kind of thought. And I kind of thought that I lost my wallet around there. And so I did some looking, but I, I didn't find it anywhere and stuff like that. And uh, and so I was watching my cards, you know, waiting to see what happened. And and like people are good, and this is something that can be a great consolation. Like four or five days later, uh, a person knocked on my door, and I live like you know. 25 minutes from that, a person knocked on my door and I opened the door and they handed me my wallet. They found it. And they handed me, I mean, how cool is that? What you're basically telling me is that a stranger found your wallet in the street and then went to your home. Yes. I. How cool is that? I, 
like I said, I, I if I were you, I would have already moved. I <laughs> I would have already moved lesson, and changed my name. And uh, oh man, I don't. The lesson is that there's some goodness in this world, Frodo. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about the news as a counterfactual? How can you get to, to be that? Frodo. First of all. You don't get to be Frodo. But second of all, yeah, it's time for us to talk about the news. But I wanted to contextualize the news in the reality that, yes, there is some goodness in this world, and uh, and that is a good thing. Yeah. And we can find it in unexpected places. Just not your wallet. This week, um, obviously, the uh, the big news in our country, the news that I think all of us have been paying attention to, and if you're a parent, news that you know touched you very closely was a school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, Um in which uh, I, I think it's 19 children and two uh, teachers died and more people are like in critical care and critical condition. And um, it, it is uh, the latest in a series of um, mass shootings in our country that one could trace back you know, over the past few decades as far as one uh, wishes, um, you know, because mass shootings have become something which punctuate American life with some degree of regularity. And uh, in recent weeks, um, there have been uh, several which have been, in, in, you know, all tragic and, and born out of different circumstances or um, committed with different uh, motivations, but all all um, all tragic and all sort of robbing us of the, uh, in a certain way, robbing us of the, of the idea that um, our ordinary everyday lives have a certain kind of security that we might expect that they might have or reminding us uh, of the uh, unpredictability of, uh, of evil and the ubiquity of the possibility of evil. And so there is sort of the immediate reaction to the horror of like 19 elementary school kids who, who are killed and then a kind of uh, awareness of the, um, of the frequency of, the, of these things and the kind of instability, the social instability that they're born, from which they're born and of which they've come to represent. And uh, I don't know about you, Ed, but um, that school shooting was on Tuesday of this week, and uh, uh, when I sent my daughter to dance class on Tuesday night, I mean, it felt palpably, you know, not that I think the statistical probability of something happening to any particular person in any particular place is, is, you know, but it felt palpably like um, reminder that um, when we walk out the door, when our children walk out the door for that matter, um, we don't know what, uh, what portends them. And um, the uh, illusion of security is precisely that, of temporal security is precisely that, and um, that there is um, a problem, an emerged, demonstrated problem that manifests itself in these mass shootings which we have in our country so frequently that we could rattle off a list that would go for a while and uh, which seem to have the commonality of actors who have um, who have been profoundly socially isolated, who have serious mental health problems, and um, who have d- delusions and who in whom those play out in these violent sort of, you know, delusions entering into reality of these acts, these sort of violent sprees. And, you know, of course, part of the conversation about that is about guns and and uh, and the kinds of weapons that are used in these things and the way that people get them and what we do about guns. But And I think we need to talk about that. But f- for me, at least, the, the first thing is just to... Well, the first thing is obviously to, to mourn that uh, th- this thing happened, but the, then to sort of say to sort of ask who, who are the people to whom 
this kind of evil is visited and, 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 and how does it so profoundly influence them that they would sort of manifest it in this way, which has become a, a pattern, you know, a predictable pattern. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, it is, um, I think when the church, starting with JP2, um, first started using the phrase culture of death, I think a lot of people thought it was a little jingoistic, a little sloganeering, a little culture warry. Um, but I, 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 I think all of these things, and like you said, we could, with a little effort, you could compose a fairly long litany of, of these that we've had now going back more than 20 years. Um, I think what we are seeing is exactly that. This is the this is the pointy end of a of a culture of death. That when we say we have a culture which has internalized um, and normalized death and violence and a kind of existential individualism that turns into atomization, that turns into nihilism. I think, um, which is inextricably connected to the way that we have dissolved the concept of the family over a period of decades. Um, you know, I think this is, this is the, I don't want to say the end stage, but this is, this is what the, the ultimate terrible symptoms of, of such a condition for a society look like that you, you get people who are so, profoundly isolated so profoundly disturbed so profoundly open to um the, the kind of warped evil suggestions of behavior that we're dealing with um and that their natural target is almost inevitably children and i don't think that is for nothing i think that the way that a, a disproportionate number of these these mass casualty events seem to be targeted at schools and at children, I think is not accidental. It's not, I, I certainly don't think for a moment that schools present, um, for example, a soft target. I mean, we're always talking about school security and, you know, there's all of this stuff that just simply didn't exist when we were kids in, in terms of school security. But so, yeah, I think that the, the disproportionate targeting of, of children and of schools and in attacks like this is, is significant. And it's not, you know, it's not, um, it's not a question of picking soft targets. It's a question of deliberately picking children. It's about picking an image of innocence. It's about picking an image of, um, you know, the most vulnerable. I, I think there is in the same way that in, um, in the church, we often speak about the, you know, the, the the weird thing about announcing the gospel is it provokes violence in in evil. That if you announce that God is love, you're met with violence. That if you announce the salvation of Christ, you get met with crucifixion. Um, yeah. Who was it? Was it Chesterton who said if you want to um, convince a group of people to uh, to uh, to hate you and fulminate against you, tell them that they are sons and daughters of a sovereign king? It may, it may well have been Chesterton, but anyway. So I, I, and I don't think the church. Um, I, I don't think it's an exclusive thing of the church, but I think the church captured the experience and the reality well, which is that um, evil reacts most violently against what is a non-aggressive image of innocence and love and good. 
And, and that is what we're seeing. And I think we have, you know, I, a huge part of this is mental health. Uh, um, but, you know, I, I think, I think at this point it's, we have to speak about a generalized mental health crisis in our society. It's not a question of, you know, um, what about those people who are particularly unwell and how do we provide for them? Sure. It's part of that, but I think there's a generalized mental health crisis. And I think as, um, as someone I was talking to earlier this week in a state Catholic conference said to me, um, you know, we, I think we had a cultural generalized mental health crisis that has been brewing for a long time, just as a result of what we've done to the family, what we've done to how we relate to each other with social media and things like that, what we have done to um, our cultural norms through basically what we, what we consume in terms of pop culture. Uh, and, and on top of all that, we've had COVID. <laughs> you know, I, 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 and again, you can't, um, it's not to say that, oh, guns aren't the issue. This is the issue. The two are absolutely related. Uh, because, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and this is something that I think um, is very difficult to, well, I don't think it's very difficult to speak about. It seems very difficult for people to have a conversation about this uh, in American society uh, after an event like this or even uh, in normal times, which is to say, well, you know, when we talk about rights, and that's usually what we end up talking about when um, when the subject of guns is broached, is people default to a conversation about rights, a legitimate right to self-defense, a legitimate right to own a gun if you want to, because the Constitution says you can. Um, and, and to say, you know, yes, that is that is an individual right, but we as a society, I mean, and I mean to be clear, this is a constitutional democracy, so the rights ostensibly derive not from natural law, not from um, you know, uh, innate human dignity. If, if they did, we wouldn't have abortion. Um, but from a written constitution that is a consensus passed and based document. Um, but to say that if we have rights like a right to general weapons ownership, um, those rights see when there's an absence of responsibility, that this is, you know, that these things exist in balance and intention, and that a society that is by and large healthy and responsible in the same way that a person who is healthy and responsible can exercise their rights to a greater degree and with a, with a greater freedom than an individual or society that is not healthy, that is not well-adjusted, that is not fulfilling its responsibilities. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I am on all of this. And that means in principle, um, you know, that, that means in principle that the sort of liberty or license of persons who are, themselves responsible may be restrained for the sake of those who would not be um, who, who would not be responsible or the class of persons who have not been been responsible I mean like it's always the case and I, I don't know you know we're not you and I are not gun policy experts we're we're ecclesiastical policy experts Ed, and um, um, there's a fascinating history on um, the, the uh, rights and obligations to Cler for clerics with regard to firearms, but this is neither the time nor the place for that fascinating excursus, which would be interesting at some point. Um, but uh, um, you hear people sort of in the discourse that follows something like this say, well, in fact, the guns in Buffalo and the guns in Texas were legally obtained, and therefore, obviously, laws won't um, do anything. What, it seems to me that the, fa the flaw in that is that is to say, obviously, those laws didn't do anything. It doesn't mean that there aren't sort of potential legislative solutions that... Um, that address the ability of um, 
the ability of people who are going to use um, guns for uh, nefarious purposes to obtain them. And um, if we find that there is a frequency with which people who are going to obtain guns for nefarious purposes are going to do so, and, and in the case of school shootings or mass shootings, generally speaking, tend to do so legally. I mean, you rarely hear that a sort of mass shooter sort of bought his guns off the street or something like that. I mean, usually they bought them from a gun shop. So if those laws did not um, sufficiently restrict a person's ability to obtain guns to use for a nefarious purpose, then it may be that the discernment of the common good is that there need to be a different sets of laws, that there needs to be a more r- rigorous sort of um, training, you know, and um, and uh, evaluative period b- before a person can obtain guns and that certain guns may not be able to be obtained. And those things, you know, may act as a deterrent to a person who would buy a gun for such things as this or simply prevent them from having the instrumental cause by which they do an act of mass violence like that, which is a good in itself, you know, to simply prevent that um, um, or become a deterrent. And indeed, such things constrain the liberty of those who do not have nefarious purposes as their end in their acquisition of firearms. But that's what it seems to me that figuring out the right balance there is what discernment about the common good is. See, we so often sort of begin our conversation about just policy, about so many things in America about rights, right? I mean, what is how, how many people frame a conversation about abortion in terms of the right to bodily, bodily autonomy and things like this? Like, we so often frame our conversations about these things which impact all of us, and in, and in some cases have this potential for lethal impact, in the context of sort of individual rights constrained by the government, that we don't think about that in the context of a discernment about the notion of the common good and the concrete manifestations of the common good. And it may be that there are very many liberties which I might wish to exercise, which I am impeded from doing so because we have to make consistent policies for the sake of the common good. Speed limits, right? A person who is not going to behave dangerously doesn't need speed limits, but we all uh, because they're going to behave responsibly, whatever, whatever. But we all uh, submit to them because of the recognition of their contribution to the common good, or driver's licenses, for that matter. Aside from people who are called sovereign citizens, which is this sort of weird fringe movement that you should look at it on YouTube sometimes, we all sort of submit to the idea that our ability to operate a motor vehicle must be heavily regulated because of the ability of a motor vehicle to be the instrumental cause of considerable uh, harm. And it seems to me not especially different to consider in the same way what our sort of policy is about firearms. And again, I'm not a policy expert. I'm, I couldn't say this policy or that. Um, but the discernment that does not begin in sort of my rights versus or why, are my, why am I being punished because of other people, but rather um, what is the thing which prevents guns from becoming the instrumental cause of horrific acts of violence strikes me as the jumping off point. It is, but I mean, the reason that it doesn't serve as a jumping off point is because exactly that frame of mind, that in order to have a conversation that proceeds along the lines you just outlined, there needs to be a sense of we. You, you need right. you need an identity of the first person plural, which we simply do not have in this country. Our society is, I mean, it's people call it polarized, people call it divided, people, you know, partisan divides and cultural divides and everything. But the bottom line is we don't have a coherent society. And that is one of the reasons why you get um, a default to why would my rights versus your rights or the the responsible versus the irresponsible and all that stuff. 
we don't have a collective mentality in this country that, and, and this is something, I mean, I wrote about this uh, in my newsletter, I think this week, um, that, you know, this is, if smarter people than I on things like American politics and gun policy and everything else, um, tell me that the only time you're, you're only ever going to get a real legislative ability to do something along the lines that the country broadly recognizes as quote unquote common sense gun policy, um, whatever that may be, universal background checks or, you know, red flag laws or whatever. That's only going to happen at the national level. And you're only going to see this sort of stuff um, actually make a difference if we have a constitutional amendment. And we're never going to have a constitutional amendment because it requires an overwhelming political and cultural consensus for a constitutional amendment to pass. And that's just impossible in this country. And that's what we're seeing is we are seeing the limits of a society that is based on the premise that we have a certain um, worldview and value base and common identity as a culture. That's what created the Constitution and the Bill of Rights was this common consensus. Was it a flawed consensus? I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, this <laughs> bloody constitution, you know, recognize slavery. It's, you know, not to say that we've become less moral, but just to say that... The, and judicial review. And ju quite. Um, not to say that, you know, we this country used to be more more virtuous than it is. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. But what we definitely are now that we didn't used to be is utterly, utterly fractured. Right. Um, and I have a whole pet theory about how... Um, Popular democracy effectively ensures that this will eventually happen over time, that it's the inevitable end stage. Uh, but that this is not the conversation for now. Um, but yeah, I, did, I, I don't – I'm becoming increasingly fatalistic about all of this, um, not yeah. just about gun crime but about – I you know, I've, I think I've been boring before on the podcast about Carl Zimmerman and his work and uh, – I found myself rereading it again earlier this week, rereading some of his stuff earlier this week after, um, after what happened in Texas, and thinking, yeah, this is the end game. We we are as a culture and society on the on the verge of total collapse, and the writing has been on the wall for about a hundred years now, and we have we have failed to heed or see or care. So what else can well, we expect? And we haven't even talked about the influence of, and I don't know that we will, but we haven't even talked about the influence of, um, uh, the the, uh, the stifling influence of um, of uh, uh, money on the electoral uh, on the legislative process. Um, look, there are any number of pressing, serious social issues that we could right now take up and say, effectively, um, Congress is stalled on them. And there are people who say, "Well, no, Congress is still capable of a good thing," or Congress is still capable of doing at the very least a very big thing. Look at the Affordable Care Act, which was a very big thing that Congress did. Uh, yeah, but it's interesting to think about the way in which money influenced the, even the legislation around the Affordable Care Act, too. By the way, but um, on the whole, in the aggregate, um, the federal legislature is stymied by the influence of uh, uh, of lobbies on any number of issues. And um, and so, uh, for that reason and, and many others, I, I too am sort of um, agnostic or ambivalent about the idea, and 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 not um, especially optimistic about the idea that uh, there's some possible sort of federal legislative um, approach to this that would be effective. And so then the question becomes: like, does that mean that we just sort of resign ourselves to the idea that this is a thing that happens in America and that's the way it 
is? You know, that seems deeply unsatisfactory. Well, I, it depends on what you mean by resign yourself. I mean, there's there's multiple ways to resign yourself in this. Um, you can resign yourself to the fact that our politics lacks um, the will or the mechanism or the or the police to um, affect any anything substantial or good, not just on the subject of guns, but in general. Uh, and therefore, you can just say, well, you know, civilizations rise and fall. And uh, sorry, this is the this is the, the best end. we can do is stave off the collapse in our own lifetime. Exactly. So that's one way of presenting yourself. I mean, the other way is to simply say, well, politics is never going to be our salvation. <laughs> politics right. is never going to um, deliver us from evil. It is never going to satisfy the the demands of justice or love of neighbor. That that is the work of evangelization. That is the work of faith, and I I am always struck by um, the mentality that says, "Well, we're, there can be no good work. There can be no effective solution without it being government." And I guess I am. I'm just not there. I don't know if I ever was there, but I just, I don't know that I am there. It's because I don't have any faith in government and I do have faith in the gospel. And it seems to me that in much the way that we have seen uh, real and in, in, from my perspective, unexpected strides in the pro-life cause um, at the cultural level, not just, you know, the possibility of a Supreme Court decision but at a cultural level that it's not um it's not the case that abortion is considered the sort of settled reality by people who are 20 years younger than us 30 years younger than us um that is a cultural win and i think we have to keep applying that same commitment to creating a culture of life and a culture of love uh, through the gospel across everything else i mean what you know what, what is the answer to any number of the things that poison our poison our society and lead to this kind of cataclysmic violence yeah it's guns it's also internet pornography it is also um the family breakdown it is also you know all of this stuff plays a part in creating a culture of death and attacking the roots of that culture is something that you know the roots are really well spread out and often underground. You've got to come at it from all sides. And I think the, the way you do it is through constant, constant, constant prophetic evangelization. And it begins with the announcement of the good news. It begins with the announcement of the kerygma. It begins with the announcement of, in the face of a massive national tragedy, um, in which the entire country either is sort of pointing fingers at each other or just sort of saying, I, we don't know what to do. To, to be able to stand up in the middle and say, there is, there is an answer. There is an understanding to the suffering of the innocent. There is, um, there is a reality of a higher order that makes sense of the reality that we have created for ourselves in this mess. And there is, a, there, is a, there is a loving God at the root of all of this. And he can be, he can be known. And, um, and, and to be able to say all that and to expect that it will be met with violence, emotional, political, and sometimes physical violence, that this is, this is what it means to combat a culture of death is in, you know, in the face of horrific, bloody violence, 
to to announce the love of God. Yeah, and and I think the profound mystery of that announcement is that um, the answer is not principally like the gospel's answer is not principally a set of policies or norms about living either. The answer, and this is the sort of mystery of the whole thing, the almost vexing mystery of the whole thing, is that the answer to be announced is a person, the the Prince of Peace with the face and name of Jesus of Nazareth, the image of the invisible God. And that's vexing in certain ways. And I want to talk more about the church's sort of ministerial role uh, and what can be learned about ministry in all times, even from a tragic thing like this, uh, when we come back from this word from our sponsor. Listeners, if you are a Catholic nurse or if you love someone who is a Catholic nurse, Ed and I want to tell you about an opportunity to gather with other Catholic nurses in praise to God, in thanksgiving um, for the gift uh, to be a nurse and the gifts that come through nursing. Um, a, A Catholic Nursing Congress, the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, which is coming up pretty soon. I... I thought you were going to say the World Series of Catholic Nursing for a minute there, and I was kind of wondering <laughs> what that was going to look like, and I was immediately curious. Like, I, I it was a weird mix-up of Cooperstown and a baseball diamond and a bunch of people in scrubs sort of triaging people on a baseball field, but it was competitive, And but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, we're not talking about the World Series of Catholic Nurses. We're talking about the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, which is an invitation for Catholic nurses to come together, to be nourished in the faith, to be nourished in their calling, to understand their identity and their work and ministry as a Catholic nurse, as a ministry, as uh, a Christian vocation and a part of apostolic life, and to go back to their nursing practice, uh, ready to sort of incorporate in a new way uh, and in a renewed way. Catholic social teaching and a Christian vision of the human person in their nursing practice. Cardinal Peter Turkson will be the main celebrant at the opening mass and the keynote speaker at the World Congress of Catholic Nurses. There will be plenty of other speakers who are really interesting, but the key is this is not a conference full of speakers. The World Congress of Catholic Nurses is meant to be an opportunity for Catholic nurses to come together to build relationships of solidarity, of cooperation, of collaboration, because it can be very isolating, I think, to be a Catholic in the healthcare space, and the World Congress of Catholic Nurses aims to build um, a fraternal unity of those who um, whose hands are the extension of Christ in the ministry of nursing. So, Ed, tell them when it is. Uh, this World Congress of Catholic Nurses is taking place August 2nd, 3rd, and 4th this summer at the National Shrine of Our Lady of Shestakova in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. You can find a link to the conference to get more information and to register in the show notes of this episode. And, you know, I'd love to say I'll see you there, but I'm obviously not a Catholic nurse, so... But if you are, or if you know one, the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, August 2, 3, and 4, register in the show notes. And we are back. And, and, you know, one of the, uh, we have had a chance to do a lot of interesting interviews and have a lot of interesting conversations this week, and I think important conversations. Um, One of the interviews that I was really glad to uh, have done this week, I had a really uh, great and interesting conversation um, with Bishop Dan Flores, who talked about sort of the theological anthropology at the root of the church's response to things like this and um, and the sort of obligation of Christians in a, towards the common good that I encourage you to read. And Ed, you had a great conversation with state Catholic conference directors from around the country who talked about um, the sort of pragmatic and prophetic work uh, that can be done um, with regard to um, responding to acts of, you know, mass violence in America. And... Uh, and then I had a really a conversation that has really stuck with me with um, a guy named Jim Beckman, and uh, 
The reason I want to talk to this guy who works now in the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, but the reason I want to talk to him is because in 1999, so 20-something years ago, uh, Jim Beckman was the youth minister at uh, St. Francis Cabrini uh, Parish in Littleton, Colorado, which is actually where I live. And um, and the, the distinctive thing about Cabrini, uh, or the relevant distinctive thing about Cabrini, I suppose, is uh, that it's just, like, literally just down the street from Columbine High School. And so... When Columbine, when the Columbine shooting happened in April 1999, Jim, who was a relatively young youth minister, like heard from a parent that there had been a shooting in the school before it hit the news, and got in his car and just drove up the street and ended up sort of inside the lines. You know, the the police created a barricade around around the high school, obviously that was extended for um, for a lot of blocks, and Jim sort of ended up inside the the, the zone, as it were, and uh, and just was. Uh, he, the way he described it made me think of a shepherd sort of running frantically for a sheep, just running uh, around to count. Um, he talked about his kids, the kids that he knew from youth ministry, to to mark down their names um, so that he could tell their parents that he had seen them in the flesh and that they were okay. And uh, indeed, there were kids from the parish uh, who, who died in the Columbine shooting, who were killed in the Columbine shooting, and so he wasn't able to tell all parents that. But I wanted to ask Jim about what ministry looked like, how... Um, a person working in ministry, a parish with an active youth ministry program with relationships with these kids, what they did after a shooting like that. Because, you know, now maybe there are lessons that have been learned and maybe there are people who would consult with a youth minister or parish ministries about responding to um, a mass shooting or mass violence from a ministerial perspective. But I don't think there was at all any kind of playbook in 1999, and that's what Jim said too. And the thing that he talked about is he said uh, there were a lot of things that they did, but fundamentally the parish became just a locus, a Christian locus for the experience of human community, that people just wanted to be at the parish, that for weeks and weeks after the Columbine shooting, the parish was serving three meals a day. And, you know, the day was punctuated with prayer, but also just was a space where people wanted to be. And so they brought in counselors and and uh, and other things, and the, pa- the priests were available, you know, a lot. And, and but mostly people just wanted to talk with each other and connect with each other. And he said one of the transformative elements of it was that their youth ministry program, which had been by many metrics a very successful program, and I you know a lot of people who are now adults who were who participated in that program, whose faith was really formed there. But he said one of the fruits of of Columbine was the way in which their youth ministry program became a program that was about the family, that parents started showing up and and he was sort of doing everything he could to encourage parents and uh, kids to conversation with one another, to prayer with one another, to a deeper sense of family identity, and then families to sort of be present to one another. And and really just, he said, you know, the parish size grew. um, I think he said that in the months after after the uh, Columbine shooting, like the youth ministry program, just by number of kids, like doubled, but really became this whole family ministry. And uh, and that was manifestly evident that it was something that people needed. And I, what I took, what I have been thinking about since then is that actually that's always what people need. Um, and that's uh, indeed like that kind of um, unity within and between families, which we might call Christian community, is both the natural and in, in a real way the Christian communion is a supernatural antidote to the kind of um, profound atomization that uh, that that plagues our society, which is not to say like there's a one-to-one correlation that if everybody is in a sort of Christian community, these things won't happen. I mean, history is manifestly uh, evidence against that that claim as a sort of a one-to-one causal thing. But that 
that kind of Christian community is precisely the thing which is um, lacking for so many people who feel, uh, who are isolated and atomized and experiencing an epidemic of loneliness and turning to, um, you know, seeing their passions inflamed online and these kinds of things, whether that's, uh, whether they, whether it manifests in something like a profound act of violence or whether it manifests in a much kind of more quiet desperation, as Bishop Flores said yesterday. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the thing that Bishop Flores said that I found, um, what was the thing I found most interesting? Maybe it was the thing I found most interesting. There was a lot I found interesting in his in his interview. Um, but anyway, the, the thing that stayed with me most was his talking about this atomization and sort of the spiritual and mental health crisis facing young people that he's encountered talking to them you know that this is probably he said that you know what he always uh, says in um, nature and the human soul both abhor a vacuum and if you have a vacuum at the heart of your life at the heart of your spiritual life um, at the heart of your personal life it will be filled it will be filled by something if it isn't filled with Christ if it isn't filled with the church if it isn't filled with your family if it isn't you know if it isn't filled with not just a Christian community, but any community whatsoever, it will be filled with something else. Um, you know, he, he was talking at one point about um, cultivating the necessity of cultivating, especially for young people, a sense of the presence of God in their life. Um, because of this idea that nature abhors a vacuum and so does the human soul. But at one point he said, I think um, neutral territory is vulnerable territory for your internal life. And I just thought that's, that's perfectly phrased. Um, and it, it, it's, I mean, it's an exact diagnosis of, of exactly how we get terrible, um, extreme outlier cases like, like we've seen in Texas and we saw not long ago in Buffalo. Yeah. One of the things that has been on my mind the past couple of weeks and as we've done the past couple of shows is a conversation I had with a, um, a friend who works in a chancery in a small rural diocese who, who basically told me, you know, that, and this is a person who really works you know, she works in a chancery administrative position. She sort of works in the heart of the of her local church, but basically told me, you know, how um, isolated she and her family feel in living the Christian life. That there are not a lot of people, you know, family age people who practice the faith where they live. That they, um, you know, that they're it's sort of they, they just don't have sort of peers who um, uh, who who practice the faith and for whom the faith is the um, sort of central. Uh, lens and access point uh, of their lives, and um, and I, you and I both, Ed, are really, really spoiled because we um, both professionally, but also personally, but both of us have the fortune of sort of like uh, operating you know, socially and spiritually in thick Catholic communities, and uh, such that we can, you know, we shouldn't, but such that we could sort of be entirely ensconced in a in a sort of Catholic universe. Again, we shouldn't, um, but we, we can be sort of uh, deeply immersed in a thick Catholic community in which, like, for me, uh, my friends are practicing Catholics, but even my nemeses on a personal level, and I have many, even my nemeses are practicing Catholics, you know, who who, who practice the faith. And so, um, you know, when you get to the point where your thick Catholic community is thick enough that it can contain both friends and, and nemeses, um, all within um, the a sort of sacramental worldview, um, uh, you're blessed, right? Beyond measure and beyond, I think, what most people have the experience of. And there's a poverty that I, I just want to recognize, I think, for a lot of people who practice the faith, like that isolation, the kind of atomizing isolation that we're talking about is not sort of, um, something which is outside of the 
um, lives and experience of ordinary believers who practice the faith, but um, but experienced by people who practice the faith as well, who find that they are um, somewhat on their on their own in this lens through which they view the world. A Christian community cannot be taken for granted. That is for sure. Right. But yeah, no, nor absolutely. can it be um, expected. I mean, it, every, 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 you know, it's funny. It's one of those, um, we talk a lot on this show and you often um, make, make clear your strong support for uh, the, the institution of the parish and specifically the constitution of the parish's territory. Um, but even in um, the territorial constitution of the ordinary parish, every Christian community is intentional. There is no there is no Christian community that exists just by default. That it requires the, I mean, to practice the faith is a choice every day. Conversion is a daily ambition. Um, prayer is a conscious daily act, um, and and so too is uh, you know a Christian community is the is the aggregate of hundreds or thousands or dozens, depending, um, of people making these daily intentional acts. Yeah. And, and I would like to say, you know, um, there can be in the face of something like, uh, like what, um, what Beckman said about the parish becoming this locus of Christian community, uh, you know, after Columbine, that it became this place where people became connected to each other. And, and people, you know, it was not just like he was saying, uh, yeah, people became connected to each other in a natural level, and that's the, that's the good. He was saying there is a good there, but that good was a sign of contradiction um, that became a mechanism of conversion. That I mean, it really sort of manifested conversions in people. And uh, and just, you know, what he called, and, and it can be used as a cliche, but I don't think he meant it, what he called as a sort of ministry of presence became in itself a genuine sort of mechanism for conversion of people, not because it led to questions that people had, and then he explained the faith, but because they simply experienced being welcomed and loved in a way that was unique, um, and that they and that experience is correlated to uh, our supernatural identity and vocation. And, uh, and so the reason I say that is because that's not, that apostolic project of presence, a conviction that is becoming more concrete for me in the wake of the, this shooting and other shootings is um, that kind of apostolic presence and availability um, is not solely the purview of the parish youth minister at St. Francis Cabrini Parish in um, Littleton, Colorado, up the street from Columbine High School. Rather, it is, I think, a central part of the apostolic vocation of the Christian family, that the Christ- the home of the Christian family is open. That, I mean, the ideal would be, and, you know, I think we all have to say, ask ourselves, what does it mean to get there, including myself, but that th- there is an ideal to the presence of the Christian family in which other people are uh, not only welcomed but received with uh, with with uh, a kind of enthusiasm and generosity and gratitude for their presence that is a sign of contradiction to the world and that combats this sort of epidemic of loneliness and isolation. I mean, like, I think what I'm saying is that in a certain way, one of the reminders here is that the home of every Catholic family should be the party house on their block in which um, the doors feel open and the presence of other people is a regular gift. Um, and not in a sort of formal way that's like, well, we have to get everything clean because we're going to have these people over and we have to get out the good silver, but just um, our doors are open. And not only are our doors open, like in principle, you could come by, but we are pursuing people to be in our presence because that's part of our apostolic identity. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is, 
it is a fundamental part of the of our baptismal mandate that you know the function of the christian in the world is to be salt light and leaven the function of the christian family even more so that you know you say to be the party house yeah to be the house that uh, to be the house that is welcoming to be the one that to be the natural locus point for you know it's you know we we we're talking about you know people who don't have a a strong christian community around them but to say that you know uh, the family is the first christian community and and to be the to be the community that attracts others to be um to be the family that um is a magnet for other people not uh, in as you said in the sense of being a locus of academic inquiry for people who you know have metaphysical questions about the nature of the trinity but you know to to be the ones that model that we have an answer in the face of horrific tragedy and we have levity and joy yeah and, and freedom peace. these and peace these things which we experience and you know i think there's a temptation among parents and maybe i experience it myself i don't know maybe i don't maybe i'm insulated from it because my kids are I don't know if my kids are always aware of these things, but um, there's a, there's a sort of natural inclination among parents to say, yeah, but the world is big and stinky, and I want to be immersing my kids in a kind of, I want our home to be a kind of novitiate of the Christian life for them. And I, I, I understand that natural inclination, but it seems to me that the thing that I most want to form my kids for, and again, this is not, not sort of J.D., talking out of practice so much as J.D. talking about his own desires for his family. But the thing to me that it seems to me that I most want to form my children for um, is this sort of uh, identity of, uh, of, of leavening presence and welcome and that, like, I have to give them a context to understand why we have people in our house who are different from us and who think differently than uh, us and, and these kinds of things. But um, at the same time, I have to make clear to them that without a sort of apostolic presence in the world, uh, you know, which might be qualified as a work, our faith is dead. That, um, you know, sort of chari- Christian charitable life is not sort of we go down to some to the soup kitchen, which is entirely removed from our everyday life, you know, uh, once a month and do our thing and then go back and sort of drive right into the attached garage and close our door and, and stay in our house. But that Christian apostolic presence is like um, fruitful, germinating and fruitful and... Um, and and uh, infectious in the in the locus of the place where we are. The love of neighbor is not a metaphor, right? Yeah, it's and, literal. Yeah. And, and again, just because I I want to be clear about this, this is Flynn talking about his convictions and not Flynn talking about the things which he has accomplished or mastered. But I, think, I don't think your neighbors you know, listen to the show. They're not going to call you. Out. No, I know. But I think this is just a good reminder uh, for me of um, of the imperative. All of this stuff that's happening is, for me, a reminder of the imperative of those things. What makes Christians do? You know, in the early church, what may, when, when person after person was asked about the early Christians, um, what was talked about, what was distinctive about Christians was not led with, the doc, with their doctrinal points, but with... See how they, the love, they love one another. See how they love one another. Exactly. That's exactly right. See how they love one another and... and, and um, see how they have levity in the face of persecution. Um, see how they uh, heap, uh, as someone said recently, see how they heap forgiveness upon the person who is m- martyring them and, uh, and, 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 in, and in true joy and, uh, and how they love one another. And those things are born out of our, um, out of a, out of our 
sacramental and creedal reality, but they're more of a witness than our, um, they're the thing which people see or don't see before they see our sort of doctrinal um, perspective. Yeah. So, well, Ed. We, we had a couple of other things we were going to talk about. We did. Today. Remember when we made a list of things we, need, we were going to talk about today? Said, I was oh, like, we only have two. Don't we need a third topic? Yeah, and we I need said, a third topic. If we get topic. to the second, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> you were right. You were right. You, yeah. You're, well, we can come back right. to we can. I, I, we, yeah, we've got plenty of time to talk about the other things because they're mm-hmm. not, you know, we were going to talk about some things happening in the life of the church, but we'll have plenty of time to talk about things happening in the life of the church because they'll still be happening, everybody. Yeah, well, we can talk about that next week. But, okay, before we stop, though, I, I have, I, off topic, not, not, not unserious, but um, on a lighter note, I, I, I need parenting advice. Oh, okay. You have a daughter. I do have a daughter. I would imagine, at least I've been led to She's believe, nice. that a fact of life, if you have a daughter, is Disney songs are now just, uh, you know, part of forever background noise in your home. Is that... Is it, am, yeah, am I, right? I mean, my kids... My kids like other playlists as well, but yeah. Okay. Is this something that you should channel? Should you develop your own opinions about this? Should you try and make value judgments about the the this film or that film or the music of this film? Basically what I'm saying is, should I bother getting invested in this or should I just let it be a free-for-all? Should I just accept, <laughs> you know, that if the kid likes the one that really annoys me, I'd just live with it? Or is it worth trying to say, well, yeah, I know you like this one, but, you know, I say dialogue. The kid's seven months old. She likes the song she likes and she likes the bright colors she likes. I think most of this is my wife. First of all, let me say this. I I have done everything I can to uh, find uh, children's music that I like um, and to make my children sort of think that these are the limits of children's music. So like the Beethoven's Wig series. I don't know if you've heard the Beethoven's Wig series, but they're great. I don't know what it's, that uh, is. They're funny. Oh, you'll, you'll love them. They're like funny. They're uh, they're uh, 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 songs by classical composers to which lyrics, to which lyrics, often humorous lyrics are affixed. And, uh, and often humorous lyrics with some... Um, that that teach uh, some things about the history of classical music. Weirdo Yankovic. So, uh, you're, you're playing Weirdo Yankovic to your children. Is that uh, with a little bit of Bach thrown in? I suppose. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. I can live with that. Yeah. I mean, Beethoven. I mean, to, to concretize the conversation, my entire house right now is either Moana or Encanto at all times. Twenty-four. Well, we're going to talk about which of those is better, but first, uh, get yourself some kids' music that you're going to like. Beethoven's Wig series, Tom Chapin, Elizabeth Mitchell. All, a lot of the children's folk singers are just. Will you quit giving sponsorship slots away for free? <laughs> if these people want to pay, I will. I will let you plug them on the podcast. But you know, I, this is our living, buddy. Then I make my kids listen to, and they have come to like. But I make my kids listen to uh, a set of children's Christian praise songs that I, that I listen to because they're nostalgic for me. But I also really like them. So we listen to a lot of Salty in our. Do you know Salty? No. Oh, you got to check out Salty, P-S-A-L-T-Y. He's Salty the Singing Songbook. And uh, he's got a whole retinue of uh, of the kind of um, Christian earworms that just get down in there and stay. Oh, you see, I thought you were going to tell me they were going to be slightly risque and offbeat that they were salty. No, so, no, Because that would no. be funny. I would listen to that. No, no. Salty is a, is pure of heart, Ed, and don't you defile him. Um, he's a singing songbook, for heaven's sake. Um, so you got to find yourself, first of all, some things that you like. But to the big question... The Encanto music versus the Moana music. I don't even think it's a question. Moana is better. Is 
is a the Moana soundtrack is better, and the Moana film is probably the, okay. Good. I wanted to make sure I wasn't an outlier because Encanto really annoys me. Yeah, I like it's the Encanto. Really music. annoying. But then I found out Lin Manuel Miranda does it. Well, of course it annoys me now. I, you know. Yeah, but guess who made the Moana music? No. <laughs> Shut your mouth. That is not true. Yeah, man. That's. I think. I if I remember correctly, Those are both Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah, and and you could tell, right? I mean, the sort of yearning uh, heroine who's. Uh, Who's sort of misunderstood and a bit of a social outcast, and well, that's um, just Disney movies. Yeah, I know, but there are certain Lin Manuel Miranda um, themes that uh, that manifest in uh, in both of them. And even if I knew how to talk about music, I don't. But there are certain elements of the music itself, which which are sort of signature Lin Manuel Miranda. So I can pick out by ear, but I don't know how to talk about music. But they have some certain commonalities okay. but the but the Moana soundtrack the Encanto soundtrack is good I don't understand the movie and so I don't always I don't get into it I, I have it's many not, questions no Encanto is not hard to understand it's just rubbish it, I mean it, <laughs> on, on several levels is it bad we are going to uh, – that whole pitch you made about people to subscribe to the show. Yeah. You know there are people who are canceling their subscriptions right now. So you – I don't you're, want you're their money. If you're going to cancel your subscription because I'm telling you the hard truths about Encanto being a rubbish film, then you know what? You can keep your five bucks because the truth will not be suppressed on this podcast. But Moana – and I think I've said this before on the show. Moana is Christological, No, no, no. Right? You haven't I mean, said this on the show before. You've said this to me before and I've said I don't know what you're talking about uh, and I didn't care because I'd never seen it. Maybe when we made a different podcast. Yeah, maybe when we made a different podcast, I used You've to never about fleshed that, but... this out. You've mentioned that you thought it had a Christological theme, and I said, I don't know because I haven't seen it, and I don't have children, and I don't care. Now that I have seen Moana somewhere in the region of 55 times, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm prepared to at least hear the argument, I guess. I think you do. Think about this line. Um, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. Is there something... I, I know who you are. You're, you are... You know, you're not. They've stolen the heart from inside of you. I know who you are. You're not. It does sound like a bad St. Louis Jesuit song. Well, it could if it was a little bit more. I have crossed the horizon to find you. But the the notion, who is the man who crosses the horizon between eternity and time, who comes from the east through across the horizon to find you, Edward, who knows your name, who knew you. Um, before he formed you in the womb, right? I mean, there's a thing by which there are these mosaic elements, right? So Moana crosses the water to bring salvation to her people. And I think that Moana's journey is three days long. And uh, and so if I'm counting right, I think Moana's journey is three days long. So there are these sort of um, mosaic elements that carry through into baptism. But I think that scene where Moana parts the sea and walks across it to effectively... Uh, heal and renew the heart of a monster and such that the monster can um, be in a certain way uh, um, experience a certain kind of divinization whether Lin-Manuel Miranda meant it or whether it's his Catholic imagination that's Christology you know it's not okay but what about the professional wrestler (laughs) what is that where does that fit in what about the professional wrestler well, maybe he is, uh, you know, maybe he, maybe that's, maybe it's Peter. I don't know. I have, I guess I haven't really I thought, thought you said the stupid that. chicken was Peter. Oh, I, the, if the stupid chicken is Peter, then maybe the professional wrestler is John the Baptist? I think you're reaching. Or, I did, I did, no, no I don't think I am. I don't know what to do with the sidekick, Ed. I don't know what to do with the sidekick. I, I think you're reaching. But if you it's, don't think there's religious imagery in that person it, cro- crossing I, the water <laughs> and the horizon and then parting the sea to heal and renew a person, I don't think you're looking very hard. 
I mean, you, whether I, it's intentional or whether I think it's you're reading it into, I think it's, an, I think it's, a, I, I think it's a very runcible metaphor. I, I, I think you can turn it to all kinds of things. Um, what else will you, could you make it? Uh, I, it's it's about entrepreneurialism, JD. It's, no, it's not. That's stupid. It's Moana is basically Lin Manuel Miranda's apologia for capitalism and expansion and probably imperialism. <laughs> I don't think Lin Manuel Miranda is a capitalist. Well, I mean, I'm sure I don't he's think a he's a Catholic capitalist. Either. I think That's my point. No, you a can capitalist read anything into it. Fair, but I this is what I don't think I'm being postmodern when I say that there there's a messianic theme running through Moana. And then some very sort of particular Christological image. I will concede that a lot. Of, I think that a lot of people import a messianic <laughs> complex into Le Manuel Miranda in general. But uh, look, there's no there's no Christological imagery in in in, um, in Hamilton, right? Hamilton is about I a person don't know, spoiled by. Seen, don't care. Won't do it. About a person spoiled by ambition. I mean, it's kind of you know, it's a, it's a it's it's just a story. Hamilton was a trash human being, and let's face it, competition was fierce right. in the founding fathers. And I think that there is a way in which Hamilton can be viewed, the, the Hamilton musical can and probably should be viewed as a tragedy in which Mrs. Sky, Mrs. Um, uh, Mrs. Hamilton is the only is is the character of virtue and, and grace. Um, I think that's true, whether that's meant or not. It's certainly there, whether it was con- the writer was conscious of it or not. But yeah, there are these messianic themes that run through Moana that I don't think that I think maybe even if they come out of sort of Christian, just the Christian influence on art and storytelling. Are there so Moana is superior? Plus the music is better. Plus the crab, that crab is cool. Yeah, the Australian Dining. crab was fun. Yeah, um, yeah okay. I, I, you haven't you haven't sold me on any of this. If anything, I think slightly less of Moana now because I think you're really you're freighting it with a bunch. She of She delivers her people. I, I, again, I, the movie doesn't annoy me, and that is the primary benefit of Moana is that the music doesn't annoy me, whereas the music in Encanto annoys me, and um, I really hate the story. I mean, quite apart from the fact this is about a group of witches that's holding a town hostage in the I, don't, I guess I don't understand the story of, Encanto, of Encanto. And well, I so, to, as I've understood it. Well, it's about an overbearing grandma and stuff. Okay, no, I, I mean, so it's it, it's about, um, yeah, there's the sort of smash the matriarchy because we've smashed the patriarchy already. There's that, which is, you know, whatever. I don't, I kind of just look right past that. And there's the, there's the weird sort of, you know, magic candle MacGuffin in the middle of all of it, which is silly. But what's really wrong with Encanto, what really annoys me, is it constantly proposes the the question of unmerited grace and just gives consistently different wrong answers right, through the exactly, entire film. Exactly. There is no consistent cosmology or, if you will, sort of ma- magicology to Encanto, and that's extremely disorienting. The world building... Well, the world building is terrible, but that, character that, building that's actually fine, the problem. The problem is the whole thing from the grandma to the kid to the, the family to the town, the whole movie purports to be wrestling with the what is grace? What is miraculous? And they all come up with just wrong answers. The, the, yeah, that's what I mean. And and whereas Moana has this 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 sacramental this the 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 sacramental economy is at the heart of Moana. She has to do a she she affects a grace which leads to the restoration of her people and the healing of, of nature itself by virtue of of this thing which she accomplishes sort of ex opere operatu but she can't do it on her own she does it in the context of an ecclesial community which is to say the professional wrestler and the chicken um again i you're the, reading way too much into moana i think that's why moana doesn't igno- you... ignore me is because it doesn't have all this nonsense <laughs> in it but no in context have this you not... watched have you put on coco for your kid yet no i don't know what that is Coco is a Coco is a great movie. It's sort of a trippy. It's a sort of trippy purgatory movie um, that that doesn't have a completely sort of Christian cosmology, but it has a pretty interesting cosmology. Nah, I don't think we're gonna do that. And a great soundtrack. 
No. But I'm telling you, man, salty's where it's at. Okay. I'll, I will consider salty. Uh, my, I also have my kids watch – I can't remember what they're called now, but these 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 shows that ha- involve a oh, – Superbook. Have you ever – so Superbook is a thing I have my kids watch, which are sort of like – uh, it's about two kids and a robot who travel back into various Bible stories. Oh, for and, no, uh, no, no, no. It's super Protestant for the most part. I can but, imagine. Um, but there's a St. Michael episode where St. Michael... My, there's Saint nothing Michael, more Protestant um, than a time-traveling robot. It's the ultimate proof texting. <laughs> it's true. But St. Michael battles Lucifer. My kids love the St. Michael episode because there's so many swords and battling and everything and... Uh, and so, you know, you could – maybe they need to be a little older, but you could check out Superbook. Nah. I'm just – my kid's no. going to watch 80s cartoons, like action cartoons. She's going to watch the Reagan-era yeah. cartoons that I grew up. It's all going to be G.I. Joe, Thundercats, She-Ra. I mean, I didn't watch She-Ra, obviously, but, you know, for her, I have, for the ladies. Yeah. I, for the ladies. I have been having my son watch Batman Beyond, which was sort of the last animated Batman that I kind of had any interest in. And uh, I mean, Batman the Animated Series is the pinnacle of all things, but it's a little bit darker. So we've been watching Batman Beyond. And he he just it's a, there's a lot of talking Batman Beyond and he just waits for the fighting, but you know he waits attentively for the fighting so that's good enough for me. It's <laughs> a start. Yeah. Well, Edward, um, we have many things that we will talk about next week, and this conversation has been as ever a pleasure. The Pillar Podcast this week is brought to you by the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, August second through fourth at the National Shrine of Our Lady of Chestahova in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, to register for the World Congress of Catholic Nurses. Find a link in our show notes, and I think the registration closes at the end of May. So if you are interested in the World Congress of Catholic Nurses, don't delay. This is the moment to register for an opportunity for solidarity, cooperation, collaboration, and spiritual renewal in the um, apostolic work of nursing. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week. 